The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, March 23rd, 2015 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca, so you know I love the NCAA tournament and I hate the commercials during the NCAA tournament. I realize it might just be that I hate commercials since the commercials I watch during the NCAA tournament are the only commercials I ever watch while football playoffs, and that's why they pay to advertise to men. So last week I told you about that one commercial with Charles Barkley, Spike Lee, and Samuel L. Jackson. It's not one commercial, it's a series of commercials, but I was talking about the one with the obvious flaw where the guys find themselves in Annapolis, should have been in Indianapolis, I say they would have found out and say the Anne Arundel County line. Wake up, fellas. We finally here. Indianapolis. Now we just got to find the stadium. Did you just say Indianapolis? The final four. Indianapolis. 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 Uh-oh. 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 But to make sure that I'm being, I don't know, a little original, a little value-added on the gist, I put my observations through Twitter. And when I mentioned this, I said, I'm sure everyone's observing the same thing. But when I checked it out on Twitter, yeah, some people like Tony Gerdeman at the Gerdo Zone said Sam Jackson and Spike Lee acting like Charles the dumb one, but they just sat there and let him drive to Maryland instead of Indiana. Exactly my point. But there were so many more people saying things like, Dan Schneider, the commercials with Barkley, Lee, and Jackson are gold. Mike Katzif, who I actually know. I'll admit, I'm really enjoying those commercials with Charles Barkley, Samuel L. Jackson, and Spike Lee. Clever writing and funny chemistry. Or, that Capital One commercial with Barkley, Jackson, and Lee was great, which is an interesting comment, because those commercials are not great. And now for another commercial during the NCAA tournament that's not great. This is also a car one. Old lady back of the car going on about something. Listen to the whole thing and how it ends. This lens is fancy. Yeah, it's the uh, premium package. Hmm. Oh, your grandfather loved it when I wore leather. He was a very dominant man. Mom? What? Can you pick up the pace? I'm 80. Hurry in now to the BMW Sports Activity Sales Event for exceptional offers. Hear that at the end, the BMW Sports Activity Sales Event. A sports activity sales event. It's not a sale. That would imply a discount. It's not a celebration. You know that old term which sidesteps the issue of will there be a discount, but sounds fun. Balloons dropping from the roof. This, this sales event is dreary, robotic, the baton death march of retail. But at least it's pegged to the most joyous event of the year, this sports activity that we all love, March sports activity. I don't know, maybe it's not even March Madness. Maybe they meant the Cricket World Cup. On one hand, I have sympathy for BMW because March Madness is a corporate term. It's owned by a corporation, so we can't just say it because that corporation, the NCAA, owns the words, the combination of words, which makes me freaking crazy. But if I want to give BMW victimhood status, they go around and talking about this sales event, right? So I'm going to invite you and BMW to my house on July 4th for a colonial unyoking and cylindrical meat fry. Or you know what? Just coming up in a couple weeks, an unleavened exodus from Pharaoh dining palooza. 
on the show today, sorry, the smartphone-based audio presentation, a new They Might Be Giants song, you know, the Charles Barkley penned script, Underwater Ninja, that was in one commercial. We've got Underwater Woman, that's the They Might Be Giants song. And even before that, a very special They Might Be Giants talk. I spiel, well, we play a little talk show karaoke with a permanent observer. But first, I know you had a lot of idealism as regards elected officials. Perhaps that idealism was misplaced. Aaron Schock, representative from Illinois and PBS docudrama enthusiast, booted from office. Sheldon Silver, speaker of the New York State Assembly and noted excruciatingly slow talker, indicted. Robert Menendez, New Jersey senator, and well, that's pretty much all you need to be indicted. Well, the indictment is said to be coming. So many officials, so many crimes or misdeeds or just the waft of dishonesty. It was always thus, right? Well, no. Zephyr Teachout, professor at Fordham Law School, has authored Corruption in America from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. Oh, she also ran against Andrew Cuomo for the Democratic nomination for New York State governor. You know Andrew Cuomo. He got paid $700,000 to write a book nobody read, and he disbanded an ethics panel after calling ethics among his highest priorities. Hello, Zephyr. Hi, it's great to be on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So there are a few frustrating things with corruption beyond the fact that we've elected these corrupt officials. My biggest frustration is the people who kind of tisk and say, what do you expect? I guess that's to be expected, but at the same time, they're not reading their history right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, of course, it's true. Like, I don't, I'm not, not naive enough to think, I, I don't know any time in American history where you haven't had some problems with corruption, but I think we're in a particular crisis right now because so much of what is corrupt is legal. So the problem right now isn't the, um, you know, bags of cash. It's, you know, not to be personal here, but Andrew Cuomo, who got a $700,000 book deal from News Corporation from Murdoch, was in fact talking at the time to uh, News Corporation about tax deals that they wanted. So we don't know if it was a quid pro quo, but there's certainly a suggestion that he's serving other interests in the public. Now, it's perfectly legal for him to talk to News Corporation while getting a book deal, but that's big-scale corruption, and I actually think a lot of our current problems relate to that. Also, let's also point out, one of three major cable channels, one of four or five major local news network is paying the governor of the state that they're located in $700,000. Stop, full stop. That's question raising? <laughs> right. No, I actually, I love it that you put it that way because I feel that way sometimes. And, you know, I during the campaign I was running against Andrew Cuomo, I all along had sort of been suspicious about this book deal. Like, if you just look at the numbers, you know, it seemed unlikely that uh, his autobiography was going to be worth $700,000. Yeah. But it, then, it, you know, I don't have any evidence. I don't have any uh, smoking gun uh, to say, here, look, there was a bribe going on. But I think you're right. I think we should just be, be outraged about that and realize we don't have to have that. And like the you, book. You can ban outside income. You can do that. This is sort of within our right to do that. And the entire, again, we're talking about New York State, but the funny or fascinating thing with Sheldon Silver is not that he got caught breaking the law, it's that the things he has been doing all along are within the law. Finally, maybe if this latest charge sticks, he did a toe touch <laughs> right. outside of the law. But to people who don't understand, this isn't uncommon. Elected officials, high elected officials, are allowed to have outside sources of income. And frequently, these are, 
law jobs or consulting jobs were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And once you do that, all you do is make a legal way to have people give you hundreds of thousands of dollars and call it anything you want. You know, actually, I think we're going to see a lot more of the Sheldon Silver kind of scandal around the country. You know, maybe that's what's ha- what was happening in Oregon. Who knows? But that you get so used to legal forms of being corrupted that you can't even see it when it crosses the line to become illegal because it feels the same. You're, it's a situation where you're serving people who are not your constituents. And so what's the big deal um, that, uh, you know, this I didn't cross this T or dot this I in this case? Right. But I actually and- think we're going to see a lot more of the you know, old school bribery, cash in the bag kind of corruption scandals because of the temperament of our current public officials is so deeply corrupted. I'm I'm a nostalgist, so I (laughs) I hope we do get a little cash under the table and maybe, you know, some sort of sting operation with a guy with a camera and a cowboy hat. But if you look at Oregon, one of the heartening things about that John Kitzhaber story where his girlfriend slash fiance slash self-identified first lady of Oregon got all this consulting money is that Oregon, and I, I was monitoring a lot of the local news, they kept saying, you know, this can't happen here because we're a state that takes this really seriously. And I think once you stop saying that as whatever the municipality is, whatever this, if it's a state, we've stopped saying it on the national level, but it's good that a few states still say that because that is exactly the line between allowing it and, you know, just game on in terms of everyone who wants to make a bribe legal or otherwise. I think you are so right about that. And, uh, you know, not to jump back 230 years too quickly, but that, that was basically the attitude of the, the people who wrote our Constitution, is that you wanted to be really vigilant about it, because there's always opportunities to, you know, to be corrupted. And what you want to do is build a political culture which uh, really demands a lot and demands that elected officials serve us and is aware of those situations in which they don't. And they understood that it couldn't be perfect. But, you know, I would argue, and I have argued, that it's actually our Constitution is an anti-corruption document. Like, if you look at what they talked about when they were writing the Constitution, it was, how do we avoid a culture in which people just give up? Yeah. And if you look, as you point out, when Ben Franklin gets this, what is a diamond-encrusted snuff box, uh, it's viewed in Europe as, oh, that's just what's done. And it's kind of a scandal in America. Yeah. And it's really interesting. So this is a a story that actually led to a clause in our Constitution. There's a clause that forbids accepting a gift of any kind whatsoever if you're a federal office holder from foreign powers. And this comes in part from the King of France giving Benjamin Franklin this diamond-encrusted snuff box. And what's so exciting about this clause is it's the United States saying, we are not going to accept the passive corrupt culture of France and England where, yeah, people give each other gifts. It's just part of what happens. That's just part of politics. We are actually going to hold ourselves to a higher standard because we see how corruption can undermine the most extraordinary of political societies. As I think about, though, the countries that are less corrupt. And we're talking, of course, about the Scandinavian countries. Canada does well. Uh, Botswana, we've talked about it here on the show. I'm a huge Botswana fan. They do well in least corruption. They have more homogeneous societies and maybe even a more homogeneous ruling culture. And if you look back at the founding fathers, they were fathers. They were white landowning fathers. And if you look back about, you know, when corruption got introduced, oftentimes it was tied up to the immigrant experience and Tammany Hall and so forth. So if you want to have a huge multicultural society, are you inevitably accepting more corruption? And if you want to have a really uncorrupt society, maybe that is not exactly where we are in reality for America of 2015. 
Uh, yeah, sure. I think you're right. We should just give up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you raise a really interesting point, and there is this sort of long tradition, actually, in particular in the United States, of the bribery laws and anti-corruption laws being used disproportionately against African Americans and sort of trying to create the archetype of, uh, you know, the corrupt politician is sometimes tagged with the immigrant or people of color. And that's a very, very dangerous tradition. It's part of the reason I prefer the bright line rules to, to giving, you know, prosecutors enormous leeway. But, you know, the other thing actually you see in a lot of the less corrupt societies on the Transparency International Index is they're actually smaller, which is different than being homogeneous. That's and I think yeah. one of the puzzles is how in a very large, you know, mass hundreds of millions of person society, do you police against that? You know, I, I'm a patriot. I often call myself a Langston Hughes patriot. You know, America, let America be America again. America was never America to me. This is his extraordinary poem that sort of recognizes our best hopes and also recognizes that we've never achieved them. So what I, I, I don't think corruption is the only problem facing the United States. You know, there are serious problems of discrimination that aren't related to corruption. But I do think we can take from the founding era a kind of vigilance towards greed, basically. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. Zephyr Teachout is the author of Corruption in America, From Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. She's a law professor. Every once in a while, she runs for governor of big states. Thank you, Zephyr. Thank you so much for having me. So let's envision this commercial. Three guys, an actor, a basketball player, and a director in a car. They're chatting. And one of them says, hey, you're in the NBA Hall of Fame. When do you think the best time to go to the post office is? And then the director says, I don't know, after work, during lunch? And then the actor says, wrong! That's when it's most crowded. Everyone's going at that time. The truth is there's no convenient time to go to the post office. And then the three look at each other and said, wait a minute, are we in a Capital One commercial? And the answer is no, you're in a Stamps.com commercial because Stamps.com allows you to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer and then just hand it to your mail carrier so easy. And then Spike says to Chuck, where do you come up with this stuff? And Chuck says, unlike the post office, Stamps.com is open 24-7 with no lines. So you can get your mailing and shipping done whenever it's convenient to you. And then Samuel L. Jackson says, right now, use the promo code THEGIST for this special offer. A no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Because I'm sick and tired of these monkey fighting digital scales on this monkey fighting plane. And then all the guys look at each other and said, have we just been gooned into someone else's ad? Are we getting paid for this? No. No, you're not, guys. I'm stealing you, just like you've stolen my attention to say... Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com and enter the gist. Ham? Terrible. Exciting news. Joining me now is John Flansburg, who, with John Linnell, is They Might Be Giants. And John Flansburg is right here on the phone with me. Actually, it won't sound like the phone. He's a musician. He's got a recording studio. It sounds good. But John's there. Hey, John. Great to be here. We were talking about your songwriting process, and basically everything you said was, you just can't write love songs. If you write love songs, you're stuck in the trap of writing love songs, and your whole career has been based on the fact that you don't want to write love songs. 
Yeah, we've been we've been caught in the trap of not writing love songs. So why is that a trap again? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it, it's love songs are beautiful. Let's yes. let's all admit it. They're okay. beautiful. Yeah. Now you you kind of have to top yourselves. You know, I, I we recently did a song called "Madam, I Challenge You to a Duel," and I have to say. I felt like that, just the title alone, really drove the whole excitement about the song because it was just such a crazy idea, you know? It just was a sort of a a snake-eating-itself kind of a an idea of a song. Yes, I know you did such a song because we played it here on The Gist. And so where'd that song, let's take that, for example, where'd that idea come from? And where'd that title come from? Uh, I was reading about dueling. I was just I was reading about uh, the the Civil War and the history of the South and uh, just sort of the tradition of uh, honor as a Southern concept. Yeah, it was a classic example of like a title or a, an opening line kind of driving an entire song. And this there's a kind of a long tradition of this. I mean, I think um, from Hey, Mr. DJ, I thought you said we had a deal to. Hi, were the replacements, or like a song like we did a song called I Palindrome I mm-hmm. that actually was a title that I came up with. I wrote kind of a second rate song to that title, and John Linnell decided that it was a title worthy of re examining just because just the title actually has this thing, this rhythm about it that reminds you of palindromes, even though it's not a palindrome. It's just, it's kind of a bad joke on palindromes. So, he constructed a whole new song just driven by the interest in the title I Palindrome I. So, yeah. t- so titles are a huge springboard for us in terms of just inspiring us the songwriting process. And that is what this new contest is about. We, the gist, and our listeners, the listeners don't even know this yet, but I'm telling you, our listeners want to help you come up with a song. So we have created... The Not A Movie Challenge, hashtag not a movie. So what you do is you go to at Slate Gist. You could tweet them to write to They Might Be Giants on Twitter. But we are constructing this with the following rules. Imagine there is a movie. Now, this movie doesn't exist. But we want you to invent the title of a movie. And from that title, They Might Be Giants will make a song. The theme to the movie, possibly the love theme to the movie, probably not. So your job is to think of a movie that needs to exist, and They Might Be Giants' job is to make the song for that movie. What else can you fill us in on, John? Well, it, you know, we're, we're excited about it because we, you know, we, we want to break into this whole movie business, <laughs> and uh, we just figured this will be a good, uh, like a, a little demo for the, uh, the, the, the movie <gasps> moguls to hear what we're, we're capable of. You've done the theme to uh, Austin Powers, uh, the Dr. Evil song. You've done You're Not the Boss of Me, Malcolm in the Middle. What else have you done? TV, We did movies. the Daily Show music for years and years. Right. We didn't write the theme, but we the one you know we actually recorded, the one with the trombone. Was that a Bob Mould song? It was a Bob Mould uh, composition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, so there's They Might Be Giants trying to get further into the movie business. They need your help. I came up with a couple ideas for movies, the archipelago of envy, the aforementioned. But then, John, you pointed out, they don't have to be funny. Don't try to make the movie title that you come up with, listener, don't try to make that necessarily that itself should be a gag. It should just be the kind of thing that could give a songwriter an idea. Is there a better way? How would you describe that? Well, I mean, I think you could go for poetry. You know, we are sort of trapped inside our own vibe, I guess. So it's it has its own kind of governor on it. But I think there's a there's a way to do it that's just evocative and, and, uh, and interesting. It doesn't, it, but I mean, I have to say, 
you know, Mike, when you sent me, you sent me a long list of, of titles that just came off the top of your head, and it just seems like you're made of this stuff. The uh, To Cleaver by Half is really one of my all-time favorite potential movie titles, and I, I think somewhere in our in They Might Be Giants' future, there is a, a Mike Pesca They Might Be Giants collaboration over uh, To Cleaver by Half. It's everything I want in a song title. I don't know if the Troma studio exists, but they're the ones to produce the actual movie, To Cleaver by Half. <laughs> it's true. Judging by the, the uh, desiccation of their sign on in Times Square, <laughs> I, I think they cannot be in business, unless the sign's meant to scare you, which is uh, would be cool. Yeah. Okay. So again, it's the Not A Movie Challenge. They Might Be Giants will be making a song based on your fake made-up movie. Hashtag Not A Movie. Tweet it to all the people that you think would be logical to tweet it to. You have a couple weeks to do this. Get it in by April 9th. Limited time. This can't go on forever. You got two weeks to invent this movie. So by April 9th, hashtag not a movie. Thanks, John. Hey, thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, the return of talk show karaoke. Meet the press head on the permanent observer of Palestine to the United Nations, Riyadh Mansour. Before that, they had on the Israeli ambassador to Israel, Ron Dermer. And Chuck Todd pressed him, Dermer, on the BB backtrack. You remember the BB backtrack? There won't be a two-state solution. Oh, you just voted for me? Yeah, there will definitely be a two-state solution. Which is a weird kind of scandal because everyone knows that BB Netanyahu doesn't really believe in the two-state solution and will do nothing to achieve the two-state solution. It's not a solution. It's lip service. It's two-state lip service. We demand lip service. His lips were not in service to lip service. And now we get this. Not scandal, this BB backtrack. I could just envision protesters surrounding the Israeli embassy demanding empty promises. They carried blank placards and chanted, hey, hey, ho, ho, you expected a rhyme, but we said no. They also chanted two, four, six, eight. At least you could do is obfuscate. Nine, seven, five, three. The least you could do is lie to me. So Chuck Todd was then interviewing the Palestinian representative, the spokesman for the Palestinians, Riyadh Mansour. You so when Hamas. we were divided, they did not want to negotiate with us. When we uh, are united, they don't want to negotiate with us. And by the way, it was Prime Minister Netanyahu who negotiated with Hamas a ceasefire during the second war with Gaza. And it was him who negotiated with Hamas the release of prisoners. So that why means, is it, so the answer why is, is it no. Legitimate? Why is it legitimate for him to negotiate with Hamas and it is not legitimate for us to put our house in order? All right, I will leave it there. No, you don't have to leave it there. Well, no, I understand time was pressing. I, I get that you can't challenge a guest on everything they say. I heard you, Mr. Chuck Todd, trying to move the diplomat along. Our region. Do you really? Therefore, do you, yeah. and, okay. but also, All right. All right, but, but they me, cannot be right. giving us. Okay. Well, we don't want council right. debates. Uh, Mahmoud okay. Abbas. So that why means, is it, so the answer why is, is no. Legitimate? Why is it legitimate for him to negotiate with Hamas? But did you see what he said? I know you had to get out of that interview, but that last thing he said was crazy. He said that Netanyahu negotiated a prisoner exchange and a ceasefire with Hamas, just like we negotiated a power-sharing agreement. We're both partners with Hamas. Come on! That is like saying 
the defendant assisted the bank robber by driving the getaway car. The prosecutor offered the bank robber a 20-year deal if he pled guilty. So I'd say the prosecutor and the defendant are pretty much in the same camp. They're both working with the bank robber. Only it's not bank robbing. It's much, much worse when you're talking about Hamas, right? Israel said, please don't assassinate our civilians. Fatah said, please come join our government. Hey, both sentences start with please and use the word our. Do you understand? Do you understand what Mansour is saying? He's saying, look, here's Netanyahu. Netanyahu said to Hamas, hey, stop lobbing missiles at us and we'll stop lobbing missiles at you. And we said to Hamas, come, come join our government. Same exact thing. We're both working with Hamas. Who doesn't work with Hamas? Look, the United States government put Hamas on a terrorist list. That takes a lot of work. That takes research. You got to do some heavy Googling. You got to watch watch Hamas's old videos. You probably don't speak Arabic. You got to translate them. You know, the part where they say we want to kill every Jew worldwide. That's a lot of work. We, Fatah, we the Palestinians, we also had to work with Hamas. We had to anticipate their lunch requests. We had to see if they wanted a sofa or a divan when we hung out. Both work. We're both working with Hamas. Who's to judge? Hamas, Bibi, they're just partners. Also, this guy is the Palestinian permanent observer to the United Nations. You know, the Palestinians are looking for permanent status in the United Nations. They want status as a state. So I'm going to call into question that title of permanent observer. I don't think he wants to observe permanently. I think the guy wants to participate. Or maybe this is all a gambit, right? Maybe he's saying, hey, man, this is what I do. I observe. That's, that's all I'm doing. I'm offering some observations about Hamas and Bibi and socks. You always lose one. What do they do that extra one in the dryer? Do they all get together? Hamas, you could work with them. We can work with them. But back to the socks. Hey, these are just a series of my observations. All right. I do know that Chuck Todd and Meet the Press were trying to do the right thing journalistically by asking the permanent observer on the show, and they were also doing the entertaining thing to try to nudge him off as diplomatese. I get that. But there are times when you have to bite back a little bit. Or you could just leave it to me and talk show karaoke. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. She denies all involvement in the whiskey ring. At least she did so before drowning off the Mosquito Inlet Lighthouse in 1884. Claire Tennisketter is The Gist's intern. Teapot Dome? No, she's only familiar with Teapot Dome in the cooking context. Managing producer Joel Meyer was never convicted of fraud by selling valuable German patents seized after World War I for far below market price. It is not true that executive producer Andy Bowers accepted $35,000 in cash for housing upgrades, including a new furnace and a redone bathroom on his Bloomfield Hills and Wildwood, New Jersey homes. We are on Yo! if you get that app and then sign up for a podcast. We'll let you know when we're ready. The gist is part of the Panoply Network. The entire roster is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. The gist. Here is our compact. We inform, you decide. All right? I've just been told that was taken. How about this? We proffer, you ponder. Huh? Or how about this? We award you state business worth hundreds of millions of dollars. You work without pay on our vacation home. Give me a new ceiling. Give me a new hot tub. Make payments for heating and water upgrades. Offer only valid in Connecticut. And now, 
because it's Monday. It's They Might Be Giants. Dial a song. You know about it. They Might Be Giants debuts their Dial a Song offering every Monday on this show. Today is no exception. We announced the Not A Movie Challenge. In fact, seconds before I even started talking and began this sentence, we put it up on Twitter. We've already gotten entries like the League of Woman Floaters. Hmm? A map of my lost sandwich. Zachary Taylor, rough and ready. These could all be movies. I do want to say, you could come up with something much more anodyne. Like anodyne. I'd like to hear a song called Anodyne. Go for the anodyne. The clever is great. I'll pat you on the back, but the anodyne is welcome too. And now, they might be giants with their latest song, Underwater Woman. Oh 